This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Mike Brown is out as nominee to become Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. Brown says he's withdrawing because of an Inspector General investigation that he says will find he didn't hire employees improperly as the head of the Defense Innovation Unit. Defense, in uh, Defense News reports Brown will continue as director of DIU. The Space Force Acquisitions Command has a new nominee. Major General Michael Gutlein will lead Space Systems Command if the Senate confirms him. Gutlein's deputy director of the National Reconnaissance Office now. The National Institute of Standards and Technology recommends agencies assume cyber hacks have already hit their systems. NIST says agencies should implement zero-trust security protocols for critical software use. Breaking defense reports NIST's recommendations come in two separate documents. Jen Easterly will head the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency after the Senate confirmed her unanimously this week. Easterly will be the second ever official leader for CISA. Chris Kemiski, CEO of Kemiski Strategic Solutions. He's former acting undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Chris, welcome. It's great to see you again. This is just another piece in this mosaic of cyber leadership across government, isn't it? Chris Inglis as the national cyber director and now a permanent CISA director for the first time in a number of months. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it, Francis. It's really you know, the, the tile pieces are falling into place. And uh, with Jen Easterly's confirmation, that really does put the last one of the major cyber positions for the federal government uh, into play. And so now it's really that uh, mosaic coming together and coordinating and communicating effectively. What's the key to that happening? Obviously, we, you and I have talked about the National Cyber Director position uh, in general, uh, not Chris in particular, but the fact that all these pieces are together. Who's communicating with who now and on what level are they communicating? Who's, who's moving what where, I guess? Yeah, so now that the uh, major players are on the landscape, it's really uh, uh, the National Security Agency and U.S. Cyber Command uh, doing the, the foreign piece of this, uh, the FBI with the investigative aspects, uh, the new DHS cyber agency that's only been around for about three years that Jen Easterly will be running, uh, and the White House uh, Office of the National Cyber Coordinator, uh, OMB, uh, the National Security Council uh, deputy director position that was created in the new administration. So these are the folks that are going to be really in the, in the core of, of any response. I think what is most striking to me, Chris, about all of this assembling, all of this coming together, a, a lot of this structure was laid out in the Cyber Solarium Commission a couple of years ago. I will be honest with you. I went over to Capitol Hill, Senator King, Congressman Gallagher, explained why they were doing this, explained what they came up with when their recommendations came out. I walked away from that thinking, here are two men who are very sincere about this, who have done pretty comprehensive work, that that work is going to turn into what every other committee mm -hmm. and commission turns into in Washington. They proved me really wrong in driving a lot of this very quickly into action. What's been the key to that and what keeps that momentum going in your mind? I think that's a really adept description of it. Uh, there were a lot of skeptics around town uh, that looked at this and said it's just going to be shelfware. It's just going to be another report that you know never gets acted upon. 
I think what was different about this is that they really did pull together uh, a, a true bipartisan coalition uh, that, that also relied on you know academia, the foundations, the think tanks, and had everybody at the table and said, look, we're going to get this done, and had very clear and precise objectives coming out of this, uh, the cyber coordinator uh, reestablishment being one of them. What do you see as the next evolution of the commission's work pertinent to this mosaic that you described earlier, Chris? Well, I think they really got to hold everyone's feet to the fire because uh, there are a lot of recommendations that still haven't been acted on. Uh, there's some good recommendations in there, uh, as you indicated in your headlines at the top, around uh, zero trust architecture, around uh, uh, software bills of material. There's a lot of recommendations that have found their way into the uh, president's executive order on cyber and also pieces of legislation that are moving. So I think really having them as a driving force behind this and, and holding people accountable is gonna be their most important role going forward. Is it possible that we would see in the coming years some type of consolidation as an evolution of this? Because it is a mosaic, but there are a lot of tiles in that mosaic. There are pieces as you've described them just in this conversation all over the executive branch, both in the civilian side and on, and on the defense and national security side. At some point, does that present a problem if we're trying to consolidate cyber operations and cyber defenses, Chris? Or is it, is it okay as long as these organizations continue to communicate and exchange data? No, I think that's a really good question. It's, it's highlighted by the uh, IG, the DOD came out this week with uh, recommendations surrounding uh, the MOU, or the relationship between DOD, National uh, Security Agency, U.S. Cyber Command, and DHS, and that the coordination and the milestones and the uh, the objectives going forward need to be much tighter. So I think that's indicative of this notion that there's going to have to be some additional uh, concentration of uh, resources uh, to make sure that this uh, puzzle really fits together uh, when the adversaries uh, attack. Given another headline that I mentioned a moment ago, which is NIST is basically codifying what cyber experts have been saying a long time for a long time, and that is agencies should act as though they're being breached on an ongoing basis. Um, what's what's success for this mosaic? What makes us what makes things work well? How do we decide we're accomplishing the goals that we would like to accomplish? I think one of the things that comes into play is that. Uh, you've got a lot of folks on the landscape that are very talented in this, and it's really making sure that they're all working together in unison. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges, I think, for Jen Easterly in inheriting a young agency like this, is setting a clear vision, making sure that you can uh, take uh, measurable, achievable steps, uh, and then be able to report that to the myriad committees in, in Congress and the, the, the folks at the White House that are overseeing the effort. I think that's really going to be the biggest challenge going forward, making sure everyone's working in, in a cohesive fashion. About 30 seconds left, Chris. What will you watch as far as what comes either from Congress or comes from the administration, whether it's cyber director's office or somewhere else at the top of the administration? Well, I'm going to be watching for that, uh, how close that coordination and connection is uh, between the deputy at the National Security Council, the new cyber coordinator as he ramps up and starts to hire uh, the objectives of uh, Jen Easterly and the CISA folks, and how do they uh, blend that in and work closely with NSA and U.S. Cyber Command and the FBI? Uh, making all those work in concert uh, when you've got an adversary that's as advanced and agile as we have now uh, is really going to be a key to success. Chris, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. Thank you. Coming next, a pay raise for contractor employees won't be as easy as it looks. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the impact of the new contractor minimum wage on the government's bottom line. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. Contractors are facing a January 2022 deadline to start paying their employees at least $15 an hour. An executive order from the Biden administration requires that pay rate for federal contractors and subcontractors. Stan Soloway is president and CEO of Solero Strategies. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for acquisition reform, and he's writing about raising the contractor minimum wage in GovExec. Stan, welcome. Thanks for coming on. The title of this piece is Raising the Contractor Minimum Wage. It's not as simple as it looks. Why isn't it, Stan? Well, it's, it's, you're not just taking one wage and, 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 and putting us to another level. You're talking about uh, lots of different wage levels between the $10 and 20 or 30 cents, whatever the federal minimum wage is for contractors, now up to 15. So it's a big number. There's a lot of different people going to be affected by it, a lot of different functions affected by it. And it creates a whole set of both potential compression and, and, and gradations of, of raised pressures. So, so if you think about Somebody making 10, 20, or 10, 30 today going to $15, that's, that's almost that's a 45% increase. What about somebody making $14 an hour today going to 15? It's a much smaller increase. Do they get proportionally the same raise? And then what happens to the folks over $15? Do they then also get proportionally raised upward? Uh, it's not to say any of this is a bad idea. I personally am a supporter of, of the $15 wage. And I think a lot of people in industry are perfectly comfortable with it because it's a level playing field. It's really an implementation question and recognizing the complexities of how the wage determinations are, uh, are created and all the different layers and levels that are involved. I am not meaning to understate the complexity of the problems that you're laying out, the one that you described and the others in this piece, but aren't there human capital best practices that already exist for these kinds of things? Or is this so new that nobody's figured out what the options are yet, Stan? No, it's been done before. The last time the federal contractor minimum wage was increased was, I think, 2014 under the Obama administration. And that time it went from $7 and something, whatever the national minimum wage at the time was, up to the $10 plus level that we're at now. So we've been through this before and they did phase it in over a period of time. So that's lesson one, because this executive order talks in terms of January 22, which really doesn't give agencies time to adjust their budgets. And really, I think, makes it even more difficult to create this sort of staging process that we need to sort of think through the issues. There's one other piece I think I'd add to this, Francis, and that is that you have the minimum wage is just one issue that has to be dealt with here. The other question is, what about other aspects of the Service Contract Act? In this case is what we're talking about. The Davis-Bacon Act for construction is also included, but I'm not really addressing that here the Service Contract Act. What about other things that we could be doing to the Service Contract Act to make it more effective, make it more efficient, make it more worker friendly, if you will? For example, if I, if the government operation in a given community is the largest employer in that community for whatever function is involved, the government is actually setting the market rate for salary. So whatever the wage determination today is, that's it. And there's no external pressure to push it upward. So do we have cost of living adjustments? Do we have a negotiated wages where you have unnatural market forces that, that suppress wages? Because the one thing people have to remember, and I think it's often misunderstood, you hear a lot about contractors don't pay this or they don't pay benefits and what have you. Under the Service Contract Act, which covers massive amounts of service contracts, pretty much anybody who's an hourly employee, the government determines what the company has to pay, and the government mandates a health and welfare benefit that has to be paid. So the only way to make sure you keep pace with inflation and market forces is to make sure you either have outside market forces that are driving you, which is what the Bureau of Labor Statistics look at, or some sort of internal automatic process 
where you don't have those outside forces. So there's a combination of things that really should be dealt with in this in this whole process. Do Does the experience that you talked about a moment ago, where we've kind of been through this before, we've seen this movie already, does that inform us at all as to potential liability for a contractor if they find out a sub hasn't caught up with this yet? What's the recourse or what's the potential exposure that a company has if somebody they're subbing to doesn't do it right? Well, this is this is it doesn't change the existing state of being the state of play, and so prime contractors are today liable to make sure that their that their subs are paying uh, wages as determined under the Department of Labor's wage determination, the prevailing wage rate, and the failure to do that comes with various penalties, having to make up back pay and so forth. It doesn't change that; it just broadens the scope in which that would that a risk might exist. Because I think one of the differences between this time around and the last time we did this is. The number of people, we don't have great data on this, but 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 it, it would appear logical that the number of people affected when you're raising from $10 plus to $15 is much greater than the number of people who were in 2014 only making 7 or 8 or $9 an hour. That was pretty rare under federal contracts. It's still pretty rare even under 15 but probably more common between that $10, $20, and $15 range, which means you have a larger universe of folks. The other piece is going to be, to your point about liability, agencies are required to do this. This could have real budget implications for certain kinds of missions, because if the labor costs of a mission are in that 10, 20 to $15 range and are really material to the cost of performing the mission, now the agency has a budget challenge and they have to figure out what to do about it, which is why phasing it in, not just all of a sudden hitting a switch, but phasing it in over a few years actually facilitates the agency being able to continue meeting its missions uh, and, and adjust to the budget pressures it creates. We have about 30 seconds left, Stan, and that lack of data seems to me to be part of the problem. I've asked a bunch of people, how many potential employees does this impact? Nobody seems to know. Is there any yeah. visibility into that? I, I suppose with some deep deep dive research, you could figure that out. It, it's not easy to determine exactly where it is because it's the, the, you can look at the number of, of jobs, if you will, you know, call center operator, engineer two, whatever it might be. You can look at the number of jobs that are covered, but the number of people performing those jobs is actually very difficult to, to, to uh, get your arms around. So I think there are some data needs. But I think also, as again, going back to the lessons of the past, the phasing and looking more holistically at the service contract act and what we can do to make it more efficient, more worker friendly and supportive, and use it as a tool to actually drive some of the broader goals of the administration more effectively, such as upward mobility and wages, uh, this is the opportunity to do it. Stan Soloway, thanks very much. Great to see you again. My pleasure. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to Stan's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, a data deadline coming for agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, using hard evidence to make better decisions about money. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Welcome back. Agencies will develop four-year strategic plans to use data in annual budget requests. 
The deadline for agencies to hand those plans in is September 30th. Robert Shea's National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton. He's former Associate Director at the Office of Management and Budget and former Commissioner on the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking. Commissioner, welcome. It's good to see you. What do you make of these four-year plans that the agencies have not a lot of time to put together and get into the White House? Yeah, and to be fair, they've been working on it for some time. OMB issued a memo uh, just uh, uh, recently that told agencies they need to take this seriously. So agencies may be taking taking a deeper look at what's required under the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act and what they really need to do to integrate uh, evidence-making, uh, building, using into their strategic planning um, uh, so that they can get those into OMB in time. One point that OMB makes in its recent guidance is that this is not a compliance exercise. Agencies should take this seriously, um, take, use it as an opportunity to integrate, to, to transform their culture into learning cultures. Um, so, you know, they, they've got a real opportunity here, but they've also got a tight deadline with some pretty uh, serious requirements. If an agency sees that guidance or saw that guidance and says, well, maybe we do need to take this more seriously than we have been, what does that transition look like? What, what, would agents, what do you expect to see agencies do differently to take this seriously than if an organization was looking at it as a, as a compliance exercise? Yeah, well, one of the requirements of the law is to do an assessment of your evidence building capacity. So they should make sure they've got the right people with the right skills in place to help build that culture. Um, OMB invites agencies to request more investment. Um, so this is a, uh, by definition, according to OMB, a mission critical function, and they should invest what's necessary to make sure they get it right. So they should be, um, uh, in addition to assessing where they are, looking for areas where they need additional investment, making those requests of OMB and of Congress. What is necessary to get it right, Robert? Well, they, they've got to have a, a, an evidence officer that is sufficiently resourced with the right people and, and, and money to, to drive uh, evidence building. They need a, a data infrastructure, um, or at least to know where to get the data if, they, if they've got to go external um, to be able to assess programs um, so that they can improve programs. Um, they've got to make sure that everybody uh, at the agency is on the same page. That, that they know what the big questions are that they're trying to get um, answered. That's the learning agenda. They know what ev evaluations are gonna be conducted over time to answer those questions. That's an evaluation plan. Um, so those are just a few of the things um, that they need to do to get it right. To the point though of the OMB guidance, is that what the agencies need to comply with the Evidence Act and OMB's guidance? Or is that what they need to really succeed to build a strategy that's going to be useful and comply not just with the letter of the Evidence Act, but the spirit of it, too? Yeah, I think it's both. But the, the memo makes clear this is about transforming cultures into learning cultures. So uh, every agency's got really important missions that impact the lives of the American people, and they should be trying to figure out what helps them achieve their missions best. That's what all this is about, so that they can 
um, uh, you know, figure out what programs are having the greatest impact, um, which are the most cost-effective activities so they can uh, divert resources from less effective uses, move them to more effective uses so we can generally get a lot bigger bang for our buck as far as mission is concerned. What is your sense of how sharp the teeth are that are behind this, Robert? What happens if some agency just says, you know what, we're, this is going to pass. We're just going to keep doing it the way we're doing it. This is too much work and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, you sound like some people I've heard before talking about this. It is an additional requirement. It is a burden. OMB invites agencies to request additional investment in their evidence building capacity. But it's important to note that this is built up over successive administrations, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. This is not a passing uh, phase. This is something that's here to stay. It's in law. The guidance that, that OMB released, I really strongly encourage folks who care about this to read it because it really does emphasize the vision and intent of all this, which is really to learn a lot better, a lot quicker about what works so that uh, we can begin to um, uh, move more of our investment into those kinds of programs um, and and just be more be more effective. You know, one of the things we've talked about is is the administration's focus on equity. Um, uh, the the one of the points that the guidance makes is that agencies should ensure that their evidence building activities are assessing and improving the equitable distribution of the government the government services and benefits. Robert Shea, thanks very much as always. Great to see you, Commissioner. Delight to be with you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv, and you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website you see right there. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award 
on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.